Just, uh, I'm just so excited to, to, to know that, you know, we're in a family where growth is celebrated. Growth is expected and growth is emphasized and, 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 and I'm almost going to say massaged into our, <laughs> into our understanding of our Christianity. God wants you to grow. Y'all made great decisions to be here today. Let me just say that right? You made great decisions to be here today. Some of you have been making great decisions to be here regularly. This is, this is kind of the thing that we want to try to do. We just want as a family to come behind you to help you make more decisions like that. Christianity is a lot like investments. If you start and stay consistent, eventually a compound effect starts kicking in that makes exponential growth happen in your life. But when you try to do it in big bursts, like you chunk $10,000 into a thing and you just leave it there for no, and never, never look at it again. After 30 years, you find yourself having earned less interest than if you did 100 consistently month by month over 30 years. You don't think it's like, but that's the way compound interest works. Unfortunately, it works the other way around if you're in debt, you know. <laughs> but... But if you make investments consistently, it causes growth. And our heart for this congregation is that you will grow first and foremost. I know if you grow, we grow. I know that. And so my job is to help you grow. But sometimes growth, you know, like anybody who's ever stepped foot in the gym knows growth. <laughs> sometimes it's tough, man. It's like, like my wife came to me the other day. She said, can you see how big my arms are today? <laughs> Like yesterday there was nothing, but today they're big. <laughs> well, guess what happened two days before that? You know, she did a body pump class for the first time in a month, and all of a sudden, like, I feel so buff, like, you know, walking around with watermelons under my arms. Can you see my, my lateral muscles here? No. Uh, that's just your imagination from stiffness. Um, <laughs> oh, there's so many parallels. I've got to stop that. We've got to get into this message here. Okay. We're going to be talking about some summer essentials during summer. Summer at OSC is kind of our theme. Um, Pastor Robert started us off with being, um, you know, heroes, not celebrities. And uh, you know what? I, I know of no bigger hero than somebody who helps another person find Jesus. Somebody who helps another person come back to Jesus. Somebody who helps another person stay faithful to Jesus. If you have a somebody like that in your life, that's a true hero. Amen. No amens for that one. It, that means I need to get into this message because there's going to be some more amens in this message or some ouches. We'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just keep going for now. Title of today's message is, why can't I just have peace and happiness? Why can't I just have peace and happiness? Ever, ever been in that place where you've just come to like a little junction in your life and you're just like, man, why is nothing resolving? Why is it just so hard always? Why can't I just have some peace and some happiness around me? Today I want to focus on two misunderstandings that we run with as Christians that, that they're really something that causes us often to be discouraged in our walk with God. And, and, and sometimes they lead us to even be disappointed with God. Have you ever felt disappointed by God? Disappointed at God? Have you ever been so, so discouraged because life was so just unraveling, such a complete mess that, that you never thought you could, it could turn out this bad for you? I want to speak to that today because I don't know, um, you know how you make it through seasons of disappointment and even tragedy, but I know that many people often end up being mad at God and depressed about life. And they end up running away from God and they end up um, just spiraling into a place of I mean, I, I, not, not getting back to what God intended for them to have in the first place. And I wanna, what I'm going to share with you today is if you get it, if you catch these two shifts in your mindset and your belief system, I believe they set you up on a much more solid foundation in your relationship and walk with God. So that when you go through tough times in life, you will never have to be disappointed with God again. And you will never have to lose your peace and your joy again. I hope that intrigues you. James 1 verse 2 to 4 tells us this. Count it all joy, 
my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And if you let steadfastness have its full effect, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, it's clear from the scripture that God knew two things. One, he knew that we were going to go through hardship. And he knew that there is a way for us to go through hardship. He knew there was, that we should be able to go through it. And he even puts a positive expectation on the end of hardship. That if we do go through it, that there will be something good resulting in our lives um, through the journey. So if God knows that we, can, we, we will face it, right? And so he's, kind of, he's going to prepare us to be able to face it. And if he's going to prepare us, that means we'll be able to make it. And, and there's a positive expectation that we can have, like Jesus said about, about Jesus on the cross, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the hardship. If we have all that, why do we still find it so difficult and so impossible to stay in peace and joy during trials and hardship? Why is it just so elusive, that place of peace? Why do we end up so often letting anxiety, depression just overcome us so much and our our view of God change so much that we start distrusting him, start wondering why the heck did he, did, he, did he send me through all this, that I end up drawing away from God and away from the things of God. Why, why is that so prevalent? And I think it's, it's because we, we probably have two fundamentally wrong ways of thinking um, that contribute to that kind of a response in the midst of trials. Have you ever asked yourself this, you know, what did I do to deserve this? All I ever wanted was to be happy, you know, and to be good for people around me. You've ever kind of thought about some of these things. You're a person that I want to speak to today. And if you know people like that, then you pray for them as we speak about this today. Psalm 119 verse 67, I believe, is a key, key, key verse for us because it, it's... It's hard to hear, but once we, if we grasp it and we embrace it and we do what it says, then it sets us up for a victory. It says this, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. That means before things started going bad in my life, I started thinking differently. I started acting differently. I started uh, introducing different things and maybe even lies of the enemy that caused me to, 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 to step out, or not step out, to cause me to act in a certain way that allowed me, that positioned me for the effects of this world to have such a bad effect on me. Now, this doesn't say that because I went astray, something bad happened to me. It says that when something bad happened to you and it ended up destroying your walk with God, and it ended up putting you so far back in your relationship with Him, that before you went, were afflicted, you actually went astray. You started believing wrong about God and about His purpose and about your position in Him that when trial and tribulation hit you, you no longer had a solid foundation that could help you to get through it. And so it derailed you. So hear me, hear me, hear me well today. I'm not saying that tragedy hits us because we started believing wrong. No, I'm saying tragedy destroys us because we started believing wrong. Because the Bible says if we do believe right, we are empowered and enabled to go through trials and not to let them derail us in our walk with God. Two fundamentally wrong things that we say that, are, that, that carry such deep mistruths or untruths or lies that they have the appearance, they, they're so, so crafty, they have the appearance of oh, this is going to help me Make sense of my reality. This is going to help me to figure out, you know, why or, or, or gain kind of, you know, understanding and, and therefore put me in a better position to go forward in life. But they actually steal such valuable truths of God's word from us that it actually sets us up later for even greater and greater and greater destruction. What are those lies we believe? The first is that Somehow we've started believing that God's ultimate plan for me is just to be happy. God's ultimate plan for me is just to be happy. And the second lie we believe is, that, hold on, 
Yeah, there we go. I'm back. The second lie we believe is that, you know, everything happens for a reason. Let's talk about this. Because <laughs> I can see wheels spinning right now. There's two problems with these. Can I, can I get some slides on that one as well so I can see where I'm at? There's two problems with this statement, God just want me to be happy, sorry, and the, and the other one as well, everything happens for a reason. Is that Number one, it's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God's purpose for us is just to be happy. And nowhere in the Bible does it actually say everything happens for a reason. And we've made these conclusions out of wrong interpretation of Scripture, and it has caused havoc in our lives. Why? Because when you have an expectation of something, and then it never, life never delivers up to that expectation, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. And so, so many Christians in today's life have been so self-absorbed that... The second reason is, you know, the second problem with these statements are that they're self-centered. They're about me. They have me in the center of the conclusion of I make about Scripture and the promises of God and the dealing with God and man. That we have begun to think that, you know, God is just there to answer my every beck and call. And then if, that if he does not, I have reason and justified reason to be disappointed with him, to be mad with him. Or when anything happens that is kind of outside of my expectation for life, I have to blame him because that happened. And I have to try and find some mystic reason for why that was necessary to happen before I can move on. How many of you are still stuck in trying to find reason for why certain things happen in your life and you have not been able to move on. Let me talk about the first one first. The first one says, every, um, you know, God just wants me to be happy. His ultimate plan for me is to be happy. And I put in what happy means, you know, good life, be successful, reach my dreams, complete my bucket list. You know, you, you put there what you want to put there. But essentially, God becomes my servant to help me achieve that ideal, that expectation that I put out. You know, we say things like, you know, the ultimate goal of life is the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, so Jesus died so that I can be happy. And the problem here, again, is it's not scriptural. It's not even implied in scripture. And I, and I know you guys are wanting to, 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 to start throwing scripture verses at me. It's okay. Start preaching back at me if you want to. But we're going to settle it today from a good <laughs> interpretive method to see how this really isn't what scripture means. And then I'm going to offer you a better thing. That will help you not just feel good when things go right, but help you stand even when things go wrong. See, the truth is, is that Jesus died so that you and I don't have to face the death penalty that we've been convicted of. But there's even a reason why he did that. Even that was not us-centered. Even that was Christ-centered. See, Jesus died so that God can reclaim what is rightfully His. Jesus died so that you and I can be His. It's still about Him. It's still about Him. See, the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written about us, y'all. Can I at least get an amen with that? Yeah? not written about us. It wasn't written to exalt us. It was written to lead us to where? To where God wants us to be, not necessarily where we want to be. See, from the beginning, we see Scripture declare who this book is about. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, who? God. Right, so... We have this, 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 this principle of uh, interpreting Bible, and it's, it's called the law of first mention. In other words, whenever something is mentioned the first time in Scripture, around that there is a principle that is laid that then after that will be not violated by the rest of Scripture. It's amazing. 
when God puts something in place, when God does something in the beginning or somewhere, the first time it's mentioned in Scripture, you can look. After that, it is always done that way. It's because God puts principles in place the first time He reveals something to us in Scripture. So when the first verse of the Bible declares that this book is about God, guess what the rest of the book is going to be about? It's going to be about God. It's going to be about God. Genesis 1 sets the tone for it. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, man was created by God. No, no, in the beginning, God. It sets the whole perspective of the rest of the book. This is a book about God. This is a book about God. And and you know what? Even when we're eventually created, it still doesn't become about us. It's actually introduced like this. It says, God said, God said, let us make man. Let us make man. It's again, it's about them. It's about the Godhead, the Trinity doing something for him. Expressing his desire in his creation. And of course then, you know, we mess up and the rest of the book is again about how he walks with humanity to get us back to him. That's what it's about. The Bible is about God. If you try to interpret the Bible from you as the central object of reference, you will always make wrong conclusions about what Scripture means. You cannot have accurate Bible interpretation skills if you are in the center If I am in the center of my interpretive framework, God and Jesus Christ always has to be in the center of the interpretive framework. That means Jesus Christ has to be represented throughout all scripture, don't you think? Look, there is a scarlet thread of redemption that runs through right from the beginning, from the first book of the Bible all the way through to Revelation. There's this awesome summary about how Christ shows up in every book of the Bible. And sometimes it's, he's, he's like mentioned pertinently. Sometimes it is a type that ref, makes reference to him. And sometimes it's just an understanding of his character, how it's expressed through the, um, God's interaction with the people in that book. And I don't know if you've heard this, this summary before, but in Genesis, Jesus is our creator. And in Exodus, he's described as our Passover lamb. In Leviticus, He's described as the high priest. In Numbers, he's the water in the desert that provides, uh, quenches their thirst. And in Deuteronomy, he is the one that flies on eagle's wings. He is like an, the, the, our eagle's wings of deliverance that comes in and saves us. In Joshua, he's the commander of the army of the Lord. And in Judges, he's the Lord of peace. In Ruth, he's revealed as our redeemer. First and second Samuel, he's prophet, priest, king, and he's the rock of our salvation in first and second Kings. He's the builder of a temple that will never fall, and he is the reigning king. Every book makes reference to Jesus. First and second Chronicles, David, of, he's the son of David that's coming to rule in the future. It's a foreshadowing of, of, of the Christ. In second Chronicles, the king who reigns eternally. Ezra, he's the priest proclaiming our freedom. In Nehemiah, he's the one that restores what's broken in our lives. In Esther, he's the protector of his people. In Job, he's the mediator between God and man. In Psalms, he's our song in the morning and in the night. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom and our strong tower. I can go on. Let me skip to the New Testament. In Matthew, he is the Messiah who is king. In, Ma- in Mark, he's the Messiah who is a servant. In Luke, he's the Messiah who is a deliverer. And in John, he is the Messiah who is God in the flesh. In Acts, he gives us the Spirit to indwell us. In Romans, power of God unto salvation. In First and Second Corinthians, he's the conqueror over death. He's our resurrection, and he's, he gives us the down payment. Of the life that is to come. In Galatians, he's our inheritance. In Ephesians, he's our peace at the right hand of the Father. Philippians, he's the God that supplies all our needs. In Colossians, he holds the supreme position in all things. And in First and Second Thessalonians, he is our comfort in the last days. And he is our returning king. In First and Second Timothy, he is our crown of righteousness. He, he is Christ our helper. In Titus, he is our hope. Philemon, he's a friend that sits closer than a brother. In Hebrews, he is our high priest. In James, he is the great physician. First and second Peter, our hope in times of suffering. 
He is the restorer of all things. In the Johns, our love and our light. He is Christ in the flesh. He is our prosperity, our health, and He is our peace. In Jude, Jude, He is Jesus, the Lord that's coming in Revelation. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, and the beginning and the end, and He is coming again to give us all eternal life. But somehow, yes, glory to God, but somehow we have begun to think that God is the means to our end. And he's there to serve me. And he's meant to help me become all I can be. There's this big sign on our way back, on our way back from Lafayette. And uh, I think you passed Doosan or something. Uh, you, you, you see this big, very flashy sign on the side. that says, stay true to you. No, I, th- I tell you what, history is Jesus' story. It's God's story. It's his story of opening our eyes to seeing him central to all of existence and to position ourselves around him. Each of us in our place from where we live to glorify him and serve him. Now through doing that, listen to me, we find ourselves. In doing that, we find ourselves. In doing that, we become all that he has called us to become. And in doing that, we stay true to him. And that is our call as Christians. You were not called to be true to you. For goodness sake, you are the problem. By you, I include me, of course, right? We are our own biggest problem. Why stay true to that? No. Let's aim a little higher to see if we can find some solutions, yeah? We need to stay true to Him. But when we stay true to Him, what happens is we find true joy. Isaiah 29, 19 says, The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. It's the meek. The meek is the person who does not stand for his own you know, exaltation. It's the person that humbles himself in the sight of the Lord. It says, Lord, I do not have the answers. I do not understand how to move forward. I need you to show me the way. I will respond in obedience to how you to respond. You want me to live. That person, the meek, will obtain fresh joy as we stay true to him and to his calling, to his way. God wants us to walk in his joy because his joy makes us strong. Nehemiah 8.10, for, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God wants us to have abundant joy. In fact, the Bible says of Jesus that he was anointed with joy above all of his compatriots. Why do you think was Jesus the most joyful of all of people around him? Because he was staying truest to God. He was walking closest to the Holy Spirit and to God's guidance. He said it like this, I do nothing except I see my Father doing it. That is where our answer lies for true joy, joy that do not fluctuate with circumstance. But it doesn't happen if we constantly think that, hey, all this is about me and my happiness. When we have ourselves at the center of our core of our existence, we will continuously be disappointed and continuously be frustrated. But when Jesus steps into the center of our existence, things start changing. Joy starts bubbling up like we cannot believe it. See, people are looking for fulfillment in achievement. They look for fulfillment in power. Sometimes they look for fulfillment in leisure activities and having control of their lives, you know, financial freedom. Some even seek for fulfillment in being good, you know, doing acts of benevolence, like, you know, taking care of people. And some look for, for fulfillment in, 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 in philanthropy. But let me tell you, There is no fulfillment to be found outside of Christ being at the center of your existence. It's only when Jesus becomes the center part, the central theme of your life, the central focus and the central, the hub around which everything else turns, everything else turns, that your life starts emanating endless joy. Once Jesus becomes the center, you are filled with joy unspeakable because nothing takes higher priority than Him. 
And so if nothing takes higher priority than Him, then your highest expectation for life is seated in Him and what He is for you, not in how your job is advancing, not in how, whether you get that promotion or not. Your life is not, your expectation of life is not, is not based on and built upon how, you know, great I, uh, you know, how free I am financially, how much time I can spend away from a job and not have to work. That's not what your life is based on. Your life isn't even based on your family. Your joy, it's not even based on your family. It's not even based on, you know, things that are very important, but they can still not be central. To our lives. If their core remains standing, then you can remain standing no matter what happens. If your central value, the highest priority of your life remains standing, you remain standing above all else. So that begs the question, if you are not standing, what was the central hub that you made everything else turn around? Because I want to say to you this, that if your life is centered around joy, you will, around Jesus, you will remain standing. It's only when our lives are not centered on Him and found on Him that it becomes shaky. And look at me, we do so many, so many times we do good things. You know, we sit, we, 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 we take the good things that God intended for us to value, for you, that He speaks about as being important, but we do something that He does not want us to do, and we take that one aspect and we absolutize it. We make that more important than Him. We make that more important than Him. And, and so what ends up happening is we end up looking for the hand of God in our lives instead of the face of God. We end up pursuing what God can do for us instead of pursuing who he is and really letting our lives be led by him but that requires everything else to be secondary if jesus is primary they be one primary everything else needs to be secondary my career needs to be secondary my, even my family needs to be secondary and sometimes we as Christians, we, we take our family, and, 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 we, and yes, it's important, but it can never be more important than Jesus. It can never be more important than your relationship with God. If Jesus is the center, it means he sets my calendar. If I'm too busy for God's things, I'm, I'm just too busy. I am I'm actually depending on things to provide for me in various ways, not just financially. We start we start depending on our friends to be our, you know, our joy and our experience of fulfillment. And that can never be. Even though friends are really important. We have to have Jesus at the center of our lives. I have a deep, deep question that I want each and every one of you to consider. How are your fears about your kids' future keeping them out of church? See, sometimes we think that our salvation for our kids' futures lie in something different than God. And that affects the way we organize our lives. It affects the ways we make decisions about what we do and where we go. Remember Psalm 119 verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But then it says, Now I keep your word. What will happen if you embrace the truth of having Jesus at the center of your life? Let me say to you, your life will stabilize. Your life will stabilize. Your life will become strong. You will still face very many trials. And there will still be very many things that go wrong because this life, and we're going to talk about that in, in the next point, is still this life. But you will be able to go through it and not be thrown off by it. We can't believe that the Bible 
guarantees us the happiness that we so make central to our life's existence. No, God died. Jesus died for us so we can be in relationship with him. That lead us to having the joy of the Lord that makes us strong despite circumstances to keep pressing into him. What's the second lie? We believe that something bad happens and it's God that did it and therefore I have to try to find reason for why this bad thing happened to me before I can move on. And most often what happens is people rather run away from God because they're mad at him than try and figure out and deal with it. How, you know, and, and, and I understand that fully. Like that's, that's just, that's a real hard place to be in to think at the first point God is hurting me and then I have to go to him to help me. That's, that's rough if you have that conviction about God. No, I can understand how your walk with God is confusing. I can understand how it's difficult for you to remain faithful to God. Because if you believe that God brings all these bad things over you to somehow, whatever, we make the justifications. God had to do this because he needed my attention or he needed to teach me something or he needed me to trust him more or he needed to just plain punish me for disobedience. How many of you have ever felt some of those things before? Let me say to you, that's not scripture. It's not scripture. And if you keep believing that about God, your relationship with God will be start, stop, start, stop for the rest of eternity. No, not eternity. For the rest of your life, you're on earth at least. Okay? Because it's confusing. It's confusing. How do I trust somebody that's constantly out to get me? Around every corner for every little thing that I do. Or how can I trust someone that wanted something bad to happen to me? Because, right? If it happened, it, it had to happen for a reason, right? How can that be? I would invite you to, like I have stopped saying these things, to stop saying these things because they reinforce a view of God that is not scriptural in your life. And it causes you to walk in confusion and not conviction about the goodness of God and how he's there to help us and how he's there to help us to become more like Jesus. And in the process of us doing that, more joy, more strength, more growth, more victory results in our lives. Now, I know some of you say, but what about that scripture verse in Romans 8 verse 28? Okay. So doesn't that say that, you know, God, God lets all this happen for a reason? Well, no, it actually doesn't say that. Let's read what it says. It says this. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We have to take the scripture in its entire form to understand what it means. This verse does not mean that everything just happens for a reason. This verse means that, look, if let me read you another translation to understand the nuance of this part here that says all things work together for good. In the NIV, it says it like this. In all things, God is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Number one, this is a conditional verse. This doesn't just apply to any old person. This applies to the children of God. This verse is written to the church. This one is unfortunate. This is the one, one of those things. The verse that they, it wasn't written for unbelievers. And so if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't just th say that, you know, God is going to make everything work out for me. How can you say that? You don't even believe in him. <laughs> you know, that's sometimes the, the contradiction that we find. But, but this verse says, for those who love God. What does the Bible say about loving God? What is love of God? It's that we obey his commandments. You see, if God's influence is exerted upon us and we respond right to his influence, it has an effect in our lives. It sets us up for success. It sets us up to walk into what he desired for us to walk into. But let me tell you this. If you are not walking according to his purpose, the Bible still say that in all things, God is working for the good. Right? In other words, yes, it will still work out, but here's the problem. God's, God's having to work through so many things, so many messes that we make, <laughs> that it takes a while for that to materialize in our real lives. And so every time I cross the purpose of God by going to my own purpose, by serving my own way of life, by doing things my way, I set myself up for the result that I can produce. And when that result 
isn't nice, then I turn around and blame God. God, you did this. You caused this to happen because you're supposed to be sovereign. Because isn't God sovereign? Right? God is sovereign, right? Yes, God is sovereign. Absolutely God is sovereign. But that doesn't mean he made you a coffeeholic. You know, they can't have a proper conversation before you had your first fix in the morning. That was your decisions. And so how does this work, man? Listen, this is what it means. God's sovereignty means that he determined how the universe will operate. And he determines the final outcome. And he also determines a certain result based on his continuous influence and input in mankind through relationship. That's what the sovereignty of God means. It means that he is in control, yes, but he does not control your lips. He does not cause you to cuss. Because how can God in the one minute say, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but in the next minute, he's causing you to do it. That doesn't make sense. So the sovereignty of God cannot mean that. It cannot have a logical fallacy like that, where where, where one proves the other wrong. No, what it means is that there's a difference between God's desire and God's design. God designed things. If you want to see God's desire and design mesh perfectly, go look in the Garden of Eden before sin. That was God's design and desire. First created perfect and, and, and meshed together well, perfectly. But after sin, guess what? After sin, there is... See, God's design created us with the capacity to walk away from Him. But God's desire was never that we would walk away from Him. So that means that we can, but God doesn't want us to. But because we can, we can go against His desire. Does that not, well, that that takes away from the sovereignty of God. No, 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 it does not. It means that God designed us in a particular way for a particular purpose. And why? guess what? Because if you cannot have authentic relationship with God, you're a robot. If you cannot say no to God, you're a robot. And there's no love to be found there. Like if I design a computer program, a robot to say, I love you. I don't feel loved by that robot because I told it to tell me that. And it can't do anything different. But when I tell my, when my wife tells me I love you when I messed up and I hurt her feelings or I hurt her, she tells me I'm, I love you, <laughs> tell me, that means the world to me. Because she has the capacity to do the exact opposite and she chooses not to. That's why God created us like this. So that means God has to accommodate, he has to incorporate all of our wrong decisions into his sovereign outcome of the earth but that means that bad things are going to happen to good people why because when you made the turn without putting your blinker on and you caused a wreck it wasn't god who made the wreck happen you should have indicated but somehow we think well why was that supposed to happen it wasn't supposed to happen if you followed the rule it wouldn't have happened It just helps us to understand that everything doesn't happen for a reason. More accurately, God doesn't have a reason why everything bad occurs in your life. Sometimes it's just human error. And look, this world is broken. So you can expect things to go wrong in this world, right? We make bad decisions. Who's made bad decisions? My hands up. Bad decisions have consequences. They do. Bad ideas believed also have consequences. It's our responsibility to believe right. And then we'll see God's way materialize in our lives. It also means that he created us with a will and the ability to go against his wishes. He did this so that he might have authentic relationship and that he would continually influence us through relationships. See, this is what he does. That's why he wants us in relationship because if we're in relationship with him, he gives us a heart that wants to walk with him, that wants to obey him. That's why if you're a Christian and you don't want to obey God, you need to go seriously wonder about that. Because the Christians want to obey God. The Bible says it clearly. Christians want to obey God. 
But sometimes our minds take over so much, we start thinking through so many, believing so many wrong things, we become the center of our lives that influences whether we can obey God. And we think God caused all these bad things to happen to me, and that causes me to have a beef with God. And, you know, now that I'm no longer in good standing with Him, I run away from Him until I can kind of figure out why that should have happened. No, the, the bottom line is, that bad thing should not have happened. And if Jesus, if God's perfect will was enacted on, earth, on this earth, it wouldn't have happened. And you have to know that. It means that on this earth, there are many decisions that goes against his desire, even though it don't go against his design. You see that? He has made human beings with the capacity to do evil things. But it doesn't mean that he wants them to do it. And that he has some twisted reason for why he causes them to do it. No, they acted against his desire. They violated his will. They're walking outside of his purpose. And because that took place, you got hurt. Or you hurt somebody. How do we deal with this? It means that if we're going to deal with this, we have to acknowledge where we messed up. And we have to learn from the failure to walk closer to God and His way of life. That's what it means. It means that we're going to have to accept the fact that this world is broken. In fact, Jesus told us. Jesus' own words. He said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Because in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome this world. When we believe right about God, we can remain in good standing with Him. I never have to feel that He disappointed me again because even if bad things happen to me, I understand it is not Him. It is this broken world. It is the enemy. It is the evil in mankind. And the great thing about not being mad at God is I can stay connected to the one that can help me through this. You know, Psalm um, 61 verse 2 says, From the end of the earth I call to you in my heart as faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than me. How many of you need a rock that's higher than which you can lift yourself up at times? How many of you need to be put on a rock to just kind of be away from all the danger that's happening all around you so that you can have perspectives, you can see, so you can find your hope and find your healing again? I've needed that plenty of times in my life. But if you start being disappointed with God, you cannot access that. Why? Because He's the only one that can give it to you. So don't blame God for things that we do. God designed you with the capacity to make decisions against His will. But that also means that God designed the other person that hurt you with the same capacity. And for us to find understanding, we have to know that God is good and that He will not send such a thing over my path. This world is broken and I have to, bang, I have to claim that verse that in all things, good things, bad things, God is working for the good of those who love Him. Within those bad things that happen, because they do happen. None of us in this room have not had any bad thing happen to us. But in it, God is working. God is working. God is working. God is working for your good and for His glory. That is Scripture. That is promise. I have told you these things that in me you may have peace. See, no matter how rough life gets, you'd never have to lose your peace. You never have to be overcome with depression and anxiety or any other thing because the peace of God is stronger than that. But you lose your peace if you start doubting God. Believing in the goodness of God and understanding that He will work all things for the good of those who love Him gives you strong, sustained peace throughout hardship and trouble this is what happens when i change my conviction to god's truth 
Jesus becomes the center of my life. He becomes the rock of my salvation. The joy of the Lord becomes my strength. You know, the word salvation in the Bible doesn't just mean I'm saved. It actually means I have well-being. I am well. It is well with me in all aspects of my life. Um, and and it, no matter how shaking there is around me, I have well-being. That is the true joy of serving Jesus. And that is what we have been called to. Not empty happiness that is based on our circumstances, but joy that just pulls me through no matter what bad thing I'm going through. And peace that helps me stay focused on the goodness of God and the fact that if it's not done, if it's not right yet, He is not done with it yet. He is still working. He is still, we sing that song in the background. We sing that song. Um, you know, if I'm not dead, he's not done. And I believe that is right. He is continually working toward his purposes for our life. Our best move when things go bad is to move deeper into him. That's our best move. Our best move. When something traumatic happens, your best move is to move closer to Him. Not to try and figure Him out, but to move closer to Him. And I believe having replaced these two lies in our lives helps us to understand, helps us to have the right thinking, helps us to have the right belief system so that when we do go through, through these things, the kingdom of God might stay our reality. The Bible says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. It means that if I am acting in my righteousness, it means I am believing correctly about the holiness of God. It means I can go to Him no matter how hard and bad things are getting. Thank you, Chris. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace in help of need, in time of need. That we might find mercy and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Any of these other ways of thinking steals your confidence in Jesus. It makes you doubt God. God wants us to know that He is our answer. And our best move is to press deeper into Him. Then we can say, Romans 8.38, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Come on, y'all. Come on. That's the joy of serving Jesus. That's the peace of God that doesn't make sense. Nothing can overcome you. No matter how hard life strikes, it'll produce more maturity in you and it'll produce more steadfastness and more commitment to Jesus in you. So let's commit to His plan for our lives, not our own. Let's seek His face and heart, not these hands only. Let's never blame Him again for the effects of human brokenness, but allow Him to meet us within our hurt, within our trouble, and lead us closer to Him and His plans. That's how we live in true joy and peace. Let's all stand together today. Father, we renounce these ideas, Lord that somehow have crept into our belief system that you are behind the bad things that happen in our life. We, we, we reject the idea that we're supposed to be the center of, of our existence and we're supposed to stay true to us and just uh, follow our dreams, our hopes. And we reject that idea today in the name of Jesus. If you believe that, say amen with me. Father, we, we, we believe the truth about your word that Jesus is to be the center of our lives. We know that as Jesus becomes central to our life, true joy hits our hearts. It starts bubbling up on the inside. Like you said, streams of living water will flow from their inside. Father, we are so thankful and we are so overjoyed at the fact, Lord, that you saved us and you reinstated us in relationship with you and nothing can shake our conviction about your grace over our lives, Father. We receive it today in Jesus' name. Thank you. We receive your peace. You're saying you would, if we think of your things, if we think of what is true, if 
we meditate on what is right, what is noble, of good report, praiseworthy, and if we then do those things that we meditate on as, uh, as we have been modeled to, that the peace of God and the God of peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. We receive your peace here today, Lord God, for those who are in Christ Jesus. In every circumstance, you are busy working out your desire for us, Lord. Father, we want to say sorry that we doubted you. Some of you just have to say that to them. I'm sorry I blamed you, Lord. Some of us just have to say, forgive my ignorance, Father. And declare today that, I declare today that you are good and you only have good things for me. Your desire for me is good. And no matter how twists and turns this life throws at me, I will not doubt that again. And I will draw closer to you to help me through my mess, to help me through my chaos. I will draw closer to you, not try and figure it out on my own so that I may walk in your joy and walk in your peace no matter how hard things go. Thank you, Lord Jesus. If you believe that, I pray that you will start experiencing just a release of things right now. Things that just confused you, things that just discouraged you, things that just made you feel like there's no hope because there is plenty of hope. Plenty of hope. But it starts with you saying yes to Jesus. If you want to say yes to Jesus in the way that we spoke of today, please raise your hand right now. I want to pray with you. Just acknowledge that before Him. It's good for us to just sometimes just say, Lord, I, I had it wrong. I had it wrong. I want, to, I want to believe what you say. Lord, you see every heart and hand raised in front of you right now. I pray that you meet with them, Lord God. By your Holy Spirit, that you would tell them that they are forgiven, that you're not mad with them, Lord. You're not disappointed in them. You're rejoicing with them right now. That you are glad that they're stepping toward you and allowing you to guide them. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name.